0: Hi, welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Corey Mintz, a journalist, author, and friend of both the show and, well, me. He was one of the very first guests on this podcast tackling planes, trains, and automobiles. He returned a couple of years later to discuss Big Night, and now he has an excellent new book coming out, The Next Supper, The End of Restaurants As We Knew Them and What Comes After. It's in stores everywhere, and I figured it was just a good excuse to get him back on the show. This time, Corey picked The Big Short, Adam McKay's 2015 comedy about the 2008 financial meltdown that devastated the American economy and subsequently the world's. But more specifically, it's about the handful of traders who saw it coming, realized nothing could stop it, and figured they'd make a few bucks. Ryan Gosling, Christian Bale, Steve Carell, and Brad Pitt are the biggest names in a packed cast, but the real star is McKay and Charles Randolph's Oscar-winning screenplay, which reconfigures the grim journalism of Michael Lewis's book into an unholy mashup of heist picture, disaster movie, and strangled comedy. You'll laugh until you don't. This is someone else's movie.
1: I, I was actually having a lot of trouble figuring, like, so what do I actually want to talk about? And then I knew you would ask me at some point, like, what kind of connects with my work or influenced me in some ways and i ended up just going back over like what are the movies in recent years that i've really loved that i haven't really like spent a lifetime obsessing over the movie fun you know it's most obviously the stuff from when you we were 10 and and the stuff that i've really fallen for in recent years has been like get out um roma the fury road um Lady Bird, and i definitely had a big emotional connection with Lady Bird, but the big short was the one that um I guess spotlight too. Big Short was the one that I was probably most just wanted to rewatch. It's so fun; it just zips along, and and it definitely like dovetails with my thinking about work in general and and the idea of um, trying to make a, a complicated collection of information that you feel the audience should know, making it palatable and entertaining to them. Uh, and, I, and I think this movie succeeds wonderfully at that, which is the, the part that I wanted to get into.
0: Yeah, um, I watched it again, I guess it would have been Monday night with Kate, who had never seen it. She'd managed to miss mm. it, because probably because I saw it at a 10 a.m. press screening and she couldn't come. Um, How did Kate feel about it? She loved it. It was, I knew she would, too, because it's mm-hmm. it's exactly her thing. It's, did she knit through it? Well, she always knits that's right. just inevitable. But there was a point where she put the knitting down because she was getting too invested in the story and it right. would mean she would lose, like something something would go wrong. Um, it's the same reason she loves uh, Moneyball, I think. It's the, 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 the sabermetrics of Moneyball versus the shell game of the big short and the way that Adam McKay unpacks it so cleanly and manages to also make us Realize how angry he is. Like just the, the <laughs> genius of casting Steve Carell, uh, who at the time, right, was I think he was either just coming off the office or still on it, even possibly. I don't remember what after he, the yeah. office ended. It's 2015. I mean, he was never
1: shy. I mean, he was still making three movies a year while he was on the office, right? So it wasn't like he was just breaking into movies in 2015.
0: Right. But his his casting in in this as the anti michael scott seemed really clever because everybody else everyone this poor man meets everybody that that bomb talks to is either incompetent or deliberately withholding like information or or skirting the law and watching Carell get angrier and angrier <laughs> at every dissemblance at every um, you know, again, it, it's, it comes much earlier in the film that I'd remembered, but his shock at the, like, they're not confessing their boasting moment yeah. is so, is so powerful. And it's so great to see. Well, it's, I was going to say so great to see a comedian cast in a role like this, but of course that's the whole point of the film is that McKay is doing that. The, the, um, the Soderbergh thing with the informant and casting funny people to play straight roles and, and use the energy in, in unpredictable
1: ways. Well, it's an additional thing. I mean, that's, that's McKay's, uh, one of his gimmicks, but it, it, in addition to that with this character, I mean, he, he talked about his slow burn. He starts the movie. Oh yeah. Angry. Like he starts the movie by walking into a, a like a, a support group. Yeah. A Holly support
0: group, I assume. <laughs>
1: Yeah, screaming at everybody. But he also—I mean—in the, in the sort of disparate collection of protagonists, for lack of a better term—but all the characters were supposed to follow. His character is probably the most likable, or rather, has—it's <laughs> hard to use like terms like this—but maybe has more noble motives than the rest of them. Yeah, he's the fewest barriers evil, to entry for us, and and yet. And yet he, as he's portrayed, is the least likable. He's so unhappy and angry that even in a room full of like obnoxious, loud, angry people, he's still the guy you're like, I don't want to spend time with him. Yeah. And yeah. it's and it's so, yeah, it's just a great bit of contrast having Cass Carell, who you know played this lovable jerk for years, to say, this is a better person, but a less lovable person. You yeah. don't want to hang out with this guy.
0: Yeah. He's he's a difficult hero, but then they're all I mean, Christian Bale's performance is no is no warmer, right? Like he's playing someone who's a brick wall to everybody. We never even see him with his family, which would humanize him, right? But the yeah. the film isn't interested in that. It just denies us that.
1: Yeah, every character is a challenge. To the expectation that in a big budget star-driven movie that we like the characters. Yeah. I mean, none of them bring with them the seeds of the audience wanting to follow their adventures and see them succeed in their ambition. You know, I mean, they they all have a sort of different reason for doing what they're doing, which is, you know, the unique concept, maybe not unique, but like the part of the idea behind an Arab structure is so you're following multiple groups of people who are all basically trying to pull the same heist. I mean, it's basically a crime movie yeah. where the government and the banks are like the mafia and they're watching three different crews who have three different schemes for robbing the same casino. And yet none of them are good people. None of them are doing it, like none of them are doing it out of Robin Hood like altruism. Uh, but they're the perfect uh, vehicles to tell the story of the causes of the financial collapse, right? The The movie never, even while like casting great actors, charismatic people, the audience is going to enjoy, never makes the mistake of thinking like we care about their lives more than they are simply the tool for telling a story that wouldn't get told if we went the usual sort of screenplay route and said, let's find one character whose story helps us see this piece of history. That just, it would have been too limiting.
0: Yeah, no, you need a wide net and also a structure that allows us to dip in and out without ever worrying about the interconnections, right? I mean, the flurry of information that, that comes at us is, it would be incomprehensible if we didn't have them constantly trying to explain it to each other.
1: Everyone's doing an exposition dump to everyone else constantly.
0: Yeah. And in a way it, it makes it a, a mystery film as well as a heist. The, the The analog I was thinking of when I first saw it was the same thing that happens in the social network early on when characters are racing across the Harvard campus to see if something has worked and Fincher shoots it like they're trying to stop a plague from getting loose, which <laughs> as it turns out, um, the big short has that similar sense of doom like there is something terrible coming in these if this is a disaster movie like they they're the only ones who can see it coming and they're powerless
1: well, to stop it. it is a disaster and it takes you know it's it comes out in 2015 after the disaster and after even the economic recovery at a time where you know just from my perspective as someone writing about food uh, I was a restaurant critic with this global recession began and I sat in empty dining rooms that used to be filled with people with expensive accounts you know, ordering, you know, big priced bottles of wine and tasting menus. And my little corner of the world, I saw it reshaped in a very short amount of time. And, and part of the upside was this big, um, golden age of sort of affordable fine dining for lack of a better term where all of a sudden like all these chefs big restaurants went to smaller places and were doing their own thing by 2015 the so much of the world had forgotten yeah. the economic collapse i mean I, I did that um i remember i met these people who were like traders who had started a dog walking business you know and there's so many people in that in that arena they were just trying to refigure their lives because banking was like on hold or rather this you know the whole mar- the markets were down people had to refigure their careers people had to go home and live with their parents and, and, and at least in food people ate you know the offcuts because they were affordable and chefs were doing something creative with them and by 2014 2015 people were back to luxury and lobster and prime cuts of meat and fancy restaurants with million dollar renovations and people didn't want to remember not to jump ahead to the conclusion of the movie, but like nothing got fixed, the banks didn't get uh, regulated or or broken up. Certainly, uh, so you know some of the anger in the movie is about rubbing. I think the audience's nose in recent history and saying like, don't forget what just happened, and what yes. is probably going to happen again because we didn't learn anything and we didn't change the rules of this this broken system.
0: No, and in fact, the whole point of the denouement is that no one was ever going to change it right like the banks were betting on the bailouts they knew they'd be fine they knew they could ride this out and that's exactly what happened and again it comes back to Carell on that on his little patio which is again a wealthy person's home like we're never (laughs) we're never very far from from thinking about just how much money all of these guys made from this from betting as as, um as uh, Ben Rickard says, like you bet against America, you bet against society. Don't fucking dance. But
1: every which single is, one of which these is people... a, a a brilliant trick that the movie plays on the audience because you know that's the that's the heart of the movie. There, right? Those few lines, right? He says something like every every point the uh, uh, oh, yeah. unemployment goes up, 10, forty thousand people, people, people die. Yeah. Die right, and he tells these guys, "Just don't dance." You know, you close a big deal; you're going to make a lot of money. Just don't dance. It's just that it's not just the characters who are dancing; the movie's dancing. It's been it's spent the last five minutes showing this montage of them making these big deals that they know are sucker bets because they're they're going to win, and the economy's going to going to collapse theoretically. And the movie is playing a very sort of David Holmes uh, Ocean's Eleven type of we're having fun caper music which stops the second Pratt-Pitt turns to, you know, him and the audience and goes, let's remember the actual stakes here. But that's, I mean, that's one of the moments where you realize that Adam McKay, who I don't know too much about other than, you know, I understand he was that writer for Saturday Night Live and, you know, I followed his his film career. But you see that despite the fact that he's using, like, what looks to be stock footage um, in... He's almost setting up scenes to, to to look like I don't have a budget. I had to throw it together with this like, with this cheap stock footage. That he is, along with obviously like, you know, the editors uh, who did a brilliant job, like really fine tuning the movie uh, for its reaction, for its, its its impact on the audience, to sort of set you up like that to feel good for a moment watching these characters dance around, that to remind you of the harsh realities. That, that the story is trying to um, explain.
0: When I interviewed him at the time, we, we talked about it, and I, I said it's basically, it would be like watching Oceans 13 if at the very last second, a tourist wanders in, witnesses everything, and they have to bludgeon that tourist to death in front of you. Like, you just <laughs> to remember that, oh, no, this is a crime. These are bad people, and this is the, the price yeah. of that.
1: And then yeah, try to see like, how you rigged this whole thing.
0: Yeah, I would love to see. I mean, just the the idea with George Clooney just turning his jacket inside out to cover the blood and then trying to pretend that everything's okay. That would be interesting (laughs) to me. But here it's the sense that, yeah, the movie is furious. It's angrier than Mark Baum is um, at what's going on. It's just riding along with these guys because it's, it's sort of trapped in um, Jared Vanette's perspective because Gosling is our host. And again, that was something that he knew would work because Ryan Gosling can be personable and funny, even when he's playing an absolute shit.
1: He's, he's pretty damn likable. Yeah. He's extremely likable. And he also, you know, there's another very cute little shtick where he reminds the audience, I think, or it's, it's, it's the two younger traders. Early on in the movie, there's a scene where they get, I guess, tossed out of this big bank and they're in the lobby and they find Ryan Gosling's prospectus and they turn to the camera and say, it didn't really happen like this, it actually happened like that. And it's a it's a wonderful little reminder from the film like, hey, you know and we know, right? In these kinds of movies. We have to combine characters and events to make things happen in a more compact way. It sometimes requires folding true to life aspects over each other in order to be efficient. Storytellers, you understand, right? And then later, gossip turns to the camera again after something happens He goes, that actually happened. You know, which is a lovely little two-part joke that's also sort of a, almost like a, a little director's commentary note attached to it to say like, you know, some things are true, some things are not true. But if I'm honest with you, then you can appreciate like, it doesn't matter which parts exactly are like that. Yeah, You can go and do the research later, but it's more fun this way. Don't you agree it's more fun this way? But just to let you know, some shit that you think had to have been made up by a screenwriter, it actually happened. For example, all the the big story of this movie, this actually happened. These banks committed this fraud and this handful of people, capitalized on it because they saw these market trends that that part is is undeniable and he also like he puts you know similar to the casting of of uh jeremy strong is that his name yeah from who is now an emmy winning succession star he's he's huge now right i've never seen him before this movie i definitely came out of this movie saying that guy you know he he steals every scene he's in um and, and, and again, not because he's like the best-looking guy. This, and I can say that. You know, I, I people have told me more than once I look like Nosferatu. I can say, <laughs> Jer- Jeremy Strong and his chain is not exactly naturally going to be stealing scenes from Ryan Gosling, and yet, even as he kind of seems to throw away every line while chewing gum, yeah, he's he's the 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 shtick he does where. Even though there's other people in the office who are specifically described as being kind of annoyingly optimistic, McKay puts into Jeremy Strong's mouth the line about, yeah, but bankers are going to go to jail, right? And uh, the banks could be broken up and regulated. He puts that level of naivety, which has to be asked just for the audience to go, oh, yeah, right. Nobody went to jail for this. Yeah. There's no repercussions. He he takes the most cynical, mean spirited, aggressively uh, negative guy and makes him be so hopefully naive just to just to tickle, you know, the audience's reaction. They're, like to, to remind them of how they felt in late two thousand eight, early two thousand nine. They were like looking we, like who's we remember. See what was happening. Going like there must be some repercussions, um, and there weren't. And then yeah.
0: there's there's a documentary. There's an excellent documentary uh, by Steve James called Abacus, mm-hmm. uh, and it's the story of the only bank that was actually investigated and prosecuted. And it was a small family-run Chinese bank in New York City, uh, founded by immigrants who were trying to help other immigrants, and they were the ones that the um, American justice system came down on them.
1: Yeah, I think I've seen the trailer for this movie, so it's good. It's great. It's it's
0: also just as angry.
1: Yeah, Small, it's, it should be. Yeah, all enough to jail. I have to see this movie.
0: Yes, I may have a link, and if I do, I'll send it to you. Um, but it's it's going to be it's PBS, so it should be available to stream from their website.
1: But there um, is also, you know, you mentioned the that kind of horror movie aspect, uh, and I, and I think that that. It's, it's worked really well in the second act when, I guess, like once all the players have placed their bets and it begins with um, the young investor partners and they're watching TV and I think they see the news about some mortgage broker going bankrupt and they say, it's it started. And it, it is absolutely like a horror movie tone. And then I think for the next three minutes, we watch as our main characters pull their hair out Trying to decipher why the regulators aren't acknowledging why all the why these credit ratings the banks' stocks are not going down, despite you know this this rash of uh, uh, mortgage failures and, and the bond failures across the board, and you know it leads to the conclusion of like because everyone is colluding on this massive fraud, but it it does unfold like almost a creeping supernatural horror. Uh, maybe because you know the the characters at the center of it all sort of pride themselves on being smart people who have figured things out. You know, they're like the scientists in a horror movie who are like, yeah. but, but this is impossible. This this can't be.
0: Yeah. It's um, it's preying on our understanding of genre and also on our expectation that everything will work out fine because we're following a bunch of nice dedicated people right they're they're all principled they might be principled in ways that we don't accept but they are as you say like they're they're still naive enough to believe in the structure of the system and and mm-hmm. that betting against it is something they all get very excited about but also secretly or maybe not so secretly just don't want to happen uh, because it would be calamitous and the thing that really struck me uh, in the in the depiction of Ben Rickert is that he is—he has gone off and become a prepper and, and opened a seed garden and he's acting as a survivalist basically without being one. But then there's that scene where he shows up in an airport wearing a mask and nods at the one other person wearing a mask and I'm like,
1: fuck, what? Yeah, a little too prescient.
0: Yeah, that feels so on point that I now want to subscribe to Ben Rickards' newsletter and find out what else I should be doing. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I, it's, it's, a, it's such a nicely defined character in so few scenes, uh, especially strange, like to have a star of that magnitude in a, in a role that small. But he's the well, he's the heart of the movie, right? I mean, he's, he's the one sort of decent character. Yeah, I think though, so. Unerringly like, so, is, anyway. Well, but what does he do other than help these two young guys get rich? You know, it's yeah. not like he, other than remind the audience what's at stake. It's not like he does something to help anyone.
0: That's fair. Um, I know that Pitt was knocked at the time for his production company making movies that he then gets to play the most virtuous humans in. So he's the right. Canadian in in Twelve Years a Slave who helps free the um, uh, who helps free Solomon in the in the. Uh, at the end of the film and here he shows up in this as as the closest thing to a moral conscience sure but But he's good at like he's really good he's
1: he's a good actor he's a superstar and he's acting as producer why not i mean michael douglas uh, who was a you know a, a huge star at some point and who also was a you know very active movie producers knew better than to cast himself as the good guy in small roles because that wouldn't have worked if Michael Douglas showed up and said, hey, I'm going to set things straight. I'm going to remind the audience what really matters because he wouldn't do that because he knew, I'm Michael Douglas. The audience loves to hate me. I'm the 80s uh, corporate scumbag. Like I think Brad Pitt understands his value, not just It's not like he was like, I'm dying to play this part. It will make me feel good. No, I think he knows his value as a star and what he could do to help the movie, not to make too many presumptions about Mr. Pitt. I
0: think he is, I think he's excruciatingly aware of his image, right? Like, I think that's why his most interesting performances are the ones that subvert it. And when he does these things, he can lean into the idea that he was a golden boy in the nineties and. The slightly gone-to-seed thing that works for him in these roles.
1: It's less egregious in this movie than in Twelve Years a Slave, where he he shows up late in the movie, doesn't he?
0: Yeah, he's the guy who springs Solomon and gets him out.
1: Yeah, and he he's way too angelic, right? The way he just shows up and he's all of a sudden like, hey, guess what? There's this great white guy. and It's me, Brad Pitt. Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to here, he's he's threaded. Through, he's an actual character. In the movie. Oh yeah, yeah. And the I think, story. I mean.
0: Yeah, I, I think Steve McQueen is using him that way as like the literal white savior in in Twelve Years a Slave because Steve McQueen is working in that sort of archetypal thing. But I guess the, so. yeah, the fact that it is Brad Pitt does who produced the movie does
1: throw a it it's jarring in that movie given the makeup of that movie. Whereas here, this is a movie that is already very involved with the managing of celebrity personas mm-hmm. for all their worth. Uh, you know that. The, the first time I saw it, much as I enjoyed the movie, I was so angry at the movie for that, the Margot Robbie scene at the beginning, oh, okay, uh, which is the first of the three series, scenes uh, where the audience has relatively or increasingly complex financial terms explained to them through guest stars. And, you know, the first one with Margot Robbie, who's a terrific actor, uh, but I think uh, Gosselin just turns to the camera and he's like, you know, this is boring to you, right? Why don't I get Margot Robbie in a bathtub to explain it to you? And she does. And I think she pretty much just reiterates what he just said. But there was just such a, I felt so condescended to. I thought, like, no, I care. I came to see this movie. I'm paying attention. Why are you talking down to me? And then we get the, you know, the Bourdain scene where he's explaining um, the mortgage bonds are just reusing the same ingredients and they're no good. Uh, With the and then and then we get the uh, the the the, the, some some scientist. Oh, it's Selena Gomez and an economist. Yeah, and a very long scene, but an essential scene explaining, I think, an important aspect, which is that like there are more virtual bets in the market than there are value of the things that are being insured. I think it's twenty to one, and they do it through this this beautiful. virtual, uh, casino where people are betting on other people's bets and it becomes, it's a very complex thing, but it's so beautifully explained and it's pretty essential to the plot. Um, and it justifies all of it, but I just felt insulted by like the filmmaker telling me like, look, you're dumb, right? You probably need this explained to you. And then I saw it again and I realized how much they were juggling and how much information needs to come across And that at the same time, this isn't a story of like, here's a story of one family who lives in Ohio that we're going to, like, we're following all these different people and they're all kind of assholes to some (laughs) degree. Like, they're, they're, they're just not super likable proxies for the audience. So like, we're not emotionally attached to the characters. There's so much math and history and financial science being explained like, yes, you do need sometimes not only to talk down to the audience a little bit but even to tell the audience that like to tell like to hold their hand and say like listen i'm going to condescend to you for a minute i hope that's okay and it is and then i and then i felt guilty about my initial reaction to the movie because it's so aware of what yeah. it's doing yeah it's my- not like it was a last minute thing
0: it is condescending because jared vanet is condescending to us and since he's the narrator that's his that's his persona leaking through it's like oh come on you you can't
1: follow this because i'm smarter than you that's but, a classic norm justification where you're saying like the character is writing the script almost well yeah but then, that's what's happening.
0: but you do get that reversal halfway through too where he turns to the camera and says i never said i was a good guy and you know we are yes. locked into his version of events and he still hates himself enough that he won't be self-aggrandizing, which I think is great. I mean, if, if Jared Vanette was really our narrator and telling the story, we wouldn't have that moment in the bathroom where he ends his call and, and his voice cracks when he does his little salute to himself, because that's Ryan Gosling having a great time with the character. It's not how Jared Vanette wants to be seen. But it is this sort of bubbling synthesis of all of the ideas that are going on in the movie that McKay... Has built enough of an arena that I would buy that, that I would actually accept all of these things as being told by Vinette because look at him waving his $47 million check at us, right? Like he wants mm-hmm. to preen just as much as the assholes in Florida do.
1: I guess so. But if if that's true, then that's because the writer and director have concluded you need an insider to tell you. Sure. You you need someone inside the asshole's asshole to tell yes. you what this was like, because who else? knows the truth and can see the situation for what it was you know yeah. a handful of people who were able to capitalize it yeah they're not the best people
0: yeah michael burry has has no perspective outside of himself like i don't think we ever we never see bail with any of the other leads right he only ever talks to his functionary and tracy Lights. Well,
1: i mean all the scenes are in his office right like he never even goes anywhere right
0: i don't think so yeah yeah. I and mean, Tracy
1: Letts comes in for a scene, which is great because, Lord, we all love Tracy Letts. Tracy Letts, but, star of Ghostbusters um, Afterlife. <laughs> you're not going to do this conversation by making me care about Ghostbusters Afterlife. I, I'm not going to even try. Um, I'm a Ghostbusters 2 person. That's the only good Ghostbusters movie. I don't know. I just, it's so strange that there's this one character who is so central and yet. Like is basically just doing phoners. Like he interacts with Tracy Letts, and there's a few other people in the office. I think the first scene he's talking to a new hire. He has a quick chat with somebody, but most of his scenes, he's in his office. He's typing at a computer. He's on the phone. I don't know if Bob Newhart's on the other end, but like he's just he's going for it. And sometimes he's super like showy. You know, he's like, he's being super Christian Bale. He's got the makeup and the teeth caps and the ridiculous haircut and he's, he's hamming it up. But, but then with short, like 75% of the time, he is doing quiet little things. He is, he is just like quietly reacting to this storm around him. You know, his big, the big dramatic moves for him is him going out to the, to the dry erase board and writing how much the stock, the their portfolio is down and putting so much into his like physicality. You know, yeah. Just lying on the floor um, is, and his distance from everyone else too. is the other thing that makes the character shine. The idea that he is, I guess, mildly autistic and is slightly distanced from people and yet has a capacity to talk very openly about that.
0: Yeah. There's the key scene where he says like, um, Someone asked him if he's being sarcastic. He says, I don't know how. This is all he can do. Yeah. There's a purity and, in that character. And, and Bale, I mean, for all of his inclinations to go big, he's consistent in the performance, right? Mm-hmm. It's not a cartoon. This is a person who just can't express himself any other way than he is doing, but all the behaviors make sense.
1: His biggest moments are playing the drums. Mm-hmm. which is in character, that's what the character does to express himself because he can't do it verbally, which is, you know, uh, it's great. And, you know, the soundtrack then plays the the metal music that he's listening to super loud, which is when Victoria, my wife, says, then can Mm -hmm. you turn it down a bit because we just put our daughter to sleep. And this, you know, it's like, that's the action scene version of this movie. That's the scene that makes you reach for the remote control. All right, we gotta turn it down a little bit because... We're hoping somebody is drifting off into slumberland. We don't have to go in there and give her a bath or anything. We don't have to talk like this.
0: Good night, sweetums. It's a nice way of demonstrating the chaos in Bury too, that this is probably how the world sounds to him all the time.
1: And we're just riding along. Yeah, plus, you know, the reality of his his character's situation, which is he has just pushed all the chips from this fund that he's managing into one bet that no one believes in, uh, everyone's angry at him and saying, "Give me my money back!" And he has to keep going on for I think a year with the bank saying, "You know, we want uh, interest payments," and clients saying, "We want to pull our money out." And he's right. And we see at the end that he's made this ungodly, truly. An, a horrific amount of money, right? Because the other characters make, I think, the young traders make like $100 million or something, and Carell and his firm make like a billion dollars. And this, the Scion group that uh, Christian Bale managed, he writes on the board like... It's 479 I think, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a profit on a billion-dollar bet. Uh, so he's cleared like half a trillion dollars. Yeah. For it's, his- it's an amount of money... That shouldn't exist. It shouldn't exist in anyone's hands. And yet somebody figured out how to uh, wrestle it away from, well, I guess from the crooks who had it is, is uh, how the audience can feel good about it.
0: Right. But of course, we also see the absolute gutting of the American economy happening to make that happen. Right. But it, it's not Burry's fault for seeing it coming. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what saves oh. it. That's what makes the film pleasurable even as it's just rolling down to hell is we're, we're watching people who just know a secret.
1: Yeah. We're watching the thieves who stole from the bigger thieves. yet. No, they did not give it to the poor or the needy, but at least they took it from the bad guys. I mean, I think that's, that's how I feel uh, going away from it more than anything else. The movie is like uh, it's, I think it's McKay's version of what, you know late period spielberg devotes a lot of his time to which is movies that almost are made for uh high school history class uh-huh. you know, like movies that your teacher is going to wheel in the tvcr on friday afternoons and say hey we're gonna learn about lincoln <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're, gonna, we're gonna learn about the cold war where I got to learn about the Munich, whatever. Like it's really just a Spielberg film series, but uh, but there's like a lot of Spielberg movies that I like them or I like parts of them, but they almost seemed made for uh, like teenagers who are never gonna learn history in class to at least get it through films. I mean, I understand Spielberg is an actual filmmaker who's making movies to be seen in a the movie theater. But I, I think they get a lot of play like
0: that. Yeah, he's making the best versions of those educational films because you know Lincoln is written by genuine writers who understand like how to how to animate the ideas in team of rivals and and um, yeah, Munich is uh, the finale aside is a really interesting meditation <laughs> on post 9 eleven vengeance and and Jewish identity. But yeah, it's the discuss amongst yourselves school of filmmaking. You Watch this, then then argue it out, and
1: those are your term papers. Yeah, I mean, can you picture the teacher, you know, pressing pause and say, "We're, we're going to watch the next half next week, but I want people to think about, you know, this. What did Lincoln uh, mean when he said uh, when he said this?" And I, I I can see this movie, even though yes, it's it's to play for contemporary audience of eighteen to thirty five year olds that it's targeted at, but it's also uh intended as a bit of a historical document to play in junior high classes to introduce an, an idea that you know by the time you're in grade 9 this is all ancient history you know if, if this happened when you were 10 years old you don't you don't care unless your parents lost their jobs this isn't something you're paying attention to but 5 years from now Ryan Gosling's still going to be a big star and you'll watch a movie with him at it because people told you it was good and you like Ryan Gosling so You just might sit still for this movie instead of texting when the teacher wheels in that TV, VCR or whatever the first. I don't know how teachers play movies. I don't know what format format do teachers use to play movies in class now? According to Ghostbusters, it is still VHS. Stop trying to talk about Ghostbusters.
0: It's in theaters now.
1: We have a duty to address it. The listeners can't tell, but Norm is texting me about Ghostbusters right now. He's <laughs> spending me, he's sending me spoilers, he's spending me gifts, nothing. With,
0: nothing but screen grabs and spoilers. Um I was gonna say that the the other really smart thing it does is tell that historical, tell a recent historical story through the veneer of can you believe this shit? Um it just mm-hmm. that that the you know now it would be the revelations in this movie will make your jaw drop, click here, to read more. It would be something just so catchy and SEO based. But McKay, when I, when I interviewed him, he was saying that you know, it was such a simple concept to explain once he started explaining it, that the subprime mortgage collapse was, and this is his quote. Um, He said, he, I just kept explaining it to people and no one ever had a problem with it because we were told over and over again Mostly by by Bush officials in 2008 that, oh, this is so complex that, you know, there's no way we can possibly explain it. We'll just, you have to trust the Fed and give money to the banks and this will, this will fix America. And it did not. But McKay was saying, you can boil it down to this sentence. They had a bunch of mortgages. They would sell them to pension funds. Then they ran out of good mortgages. So they put shit mortgages in there, but they were still calling them AAA. And he says, people would just look at him and say, that's it. And like, that's it. Then they did other shit. And the central premise of the movie is that everyone should know this, this simply, and that there's no reason not to have this information. And it's true. It took another seven years for a movie to come out that explained it that succinctly. And that's just amazing to me.
1: Well, he also, he's so eager to make this movie that he is almost cramming uh the prologue into the credits of the other guys.
0: Yes, we did. We did talk about that, 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 (laughs) you know, people said, Oh, all of a sudden you're this big, you know, issues guy. And I'm like, no, the other guys is all about, it ends with a, an animated, an animatic over the end credits about financial fraud. Like you've always been this, this guy, you just, and he said, yeah, I've just never been this angry all the time. Like this, this angry enough to make the movie, I think is what he meant.
1: Well, it's such an interesting, uh, Route? Do you say route or root?
0: Everybody's saying route
1: these days. Okay. I, I like root. I started saying pecan recently. I was talking to, I was interviewing somebody from down south about barbecue, and I was saying something about pecan. He said, or he asked me, "Do you use uh, pecan wood?" And I was like, "I'm gonna start saying pecan. That sounds a lot classier than pecan." Um, but the but the the root of McKay's um, uh, career, like from comedy into you know the stuff he's doing now. Even though, you know, Succession. When I was watching Succession, and I was like, it almost seems like every scene is written like a comedy scene, and they're just playing it seriously. Mm-hmm. Like every scene, every scene has a joke and a butt. Um, yeah. And uh, and and Vice, which is like so jokey and so comedy focused for a biography of Dick Cheney. But the turning point is the end credit sequence in this wacky comedy. The other guys, Will Ferrell, and is it Mark Wahlberg? Wahlberg, yeah. And yeah, listener, if, if you haven't seen the other guys, even if you don't see the other guys, just watch the end credits. It's a five-minute animated sequence that goes on and on about financial fraud, seeking to explain it over the end credits of a wacky Will Ferrell comedy. Um, and it, you know it—it it, it tells you that the director is just like I, 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 this has to come out somewhere. Yeah. Like yeah. the the end credits, but or, or much as the other guys, yes, the villain is like this this banker. It wasn't necessary to do that in the end credits, and yet he's just like I need to be talking about this. And of course, like it comes out through this. And I guess maybe the studio was it. Well, obviously he had stars attached, and you know, they're like you can do whatever you want. We have stars like this attached, but. I think this is Moneyball which is uh, the author is of the same book or the, or the 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 writer also wrote Moneyball, right?
0: Yeah, Michael Lewis is, is of course the Moneyball there guy. There you go, yeah.
1: But that must have additionally convinced people like the audience can sit still for math if Brad Pitt is, <laughs> is on the screen. Moneyball is the only movie about sports I've seen in the last 20 years. Like sports is such a huge turnoff. I don't want to see anything. I don't want to listen to anything about sports. I did, I saw Moneyball, up it, like very well-made movie. And because it's about business, it's not, to me, it's not a sports movie. It's not a movie about what, like sports movies about whether they win the big game or fight at the end. And this is like, Moneyball is, is about uh, business and approved. And the audience can follow that aspect of it, uh, which they do here, I think. And I don't know if anybody at the screening, the pack screening that I was at, came out going, what the hell were they talking about? I like think the movie really holds your hand uh, to the exact calibration that it needs to. I mean, like I said, I felt insulted, Yeah, but I think that's good. I think every once in a while, it's good to, um, I use this phrase a lot, but like to rub the audience's nose in it. Um, because sometimes we almost need to feel a little bit of shame about not for our ignorance but just for what our world is made of you yeah. know to like ha- have that truth of it rubbed in us in our face the way you do to punish a dog to say like i just don't want you to do this again i don't want you to feel bad like i don't want you to pee on this spot again and i want you to connect this emotionally with, with feeling bad a bit we we just finished watching that um I think it's called Turning Point, uh, a documentary series about 9/11 and the war in Afghanistan. Oh yeah. And uh, spoiler alert: if you have not uh, either seen this or followed the news, uh, but the, but it, it sort of it goes back to the early 90s to the uh, Russian invasion of Afghanistan and all the way through to this last summer. And it, it one of the last moments in the movie's endless series of epilogues and final moments is is um afghani civilians and soldiers footage from last may or april talking about how yes the americans are pulling out but it's not going to change this like this country we've taken it back taliban's not going to resume power we're going to stay we're going to fight for what we believe in this is a new afghanistan we're committed you know soldiers saying like i'm not you know. I'm not going to give up, and it's so painful in the wake of you know what has happened in uh, in last month and the Taliban just in a split second resuming control of that country. Uh, it's painful to watch, and you kind of you need to see that. You need to be reminded of like just just how people felt not so long ago in relation to. What has actually happened? and and I think that he, like in the big short, he does a good job skirting the line in a movie that seeks to, you know make the audience laugh often enough that you don't um, fall you don't fall into hating the movie or hating the experience of watching a movie while getting as angry as angry as they can get you to be.
0: yeah, as angry as he is. he wants us to match his rage.
1: Yeah, which is an interesting challenge, right? If a director is making a movie about grief or joy or love or whatever it is to get you to feel that thing, I, I think that's what he's on about here. He's, I think he's certainly successful.
0: Well, this is obviously the perfect time to ask. Um, you have just written a book about the collapse of an industry that no one ever thought could fail. So was the big short an influence at all? Did you learn anything? Is there a like a flip book of Margot Robbie in a bubble bath in the middle of <laughs> chapter six?
1: <laughs> I didn't use that device, but I did use uh, another storytelling tool from this movie. And it was, I think, unintentionally uh, a big influence. I was definitely angry when I came up with the idea for the book and when I was writing the proposal. And if anything... I was trying to tamp down that anger, I mean, also at the advice of uh, an editor and an agent. But I mean, the book comes from me having been a cook and then a restaurant critic and then a columnist about food for many years, and then starting to segue my career into writing more about labor and the systemic issues in the food and restaurant world and being really angry at what I saw. And I proposed this book, which became sort of about all the systemic issues in restaurants, but also about the proposed solutions for these things, what people are doing better, um, packaged as a guide for how we can uh, find a better way to choose where to eat because we want to support businesses that are doing good in the world as opposed to evil. Um, So it comes from a place of being that kind of almost bitter level, angry about these things, but I, I had only seen The Big Short once in the theater, and as I mentioned, I was kind of pissed at what I felt was kind of talking down to me. Mm-hmm. And I didn't watch it again until midway through working on the book. Um, I was, I remember, I was staying with my wife's parents and working in, in my my father in law's old office, and I just did this interview, and we were talking about. Uh, the oversaturation of chain restaurants and, and somebody mentioned to me the economist michael jensen and how he had really been a big part of advancing the uh, a change in the way that we compensate ceos um, and the short version of that is uh he proposed the idea that CEOs should be compensated based on stock performance and it really ushered in people argue in an era of short-termism versus caring about the long-term health of the company and the country where the company is located and the people who live in that place. And, uh, and I came with this this idea for one of my chapters, specifically like the chapter that's about like chain and, and, um, and fast food restaurants, as opposed to the chef driven and all the different genres of restaurants. And what if like, I could sort of begin the chapter of like, this sort of flashback of, you know, the real villain of restaurants is this economist from the seventies. And, and as I sort of started to sketch out this idea and and write a few sort of paragraphs, even while I was months away from actually writing any chapters, um, I kind of wrote it up and let it sit there. And then I think maybe it, I think maybe the big short just started playing on Netflix at that time. And I saw it and I, I started rewatching it. And it very quickly, the movie opens on exactly that idea, and I, which I must have stolen subconsciously, you know what I mean? Or at least yeah. if it occurred to me, something in my brain went, oh, it's probably a good idea because you have an example of it working. Because the movie opens with this scene of this financial whatever, uh, uh, analyst or, or stockbroker in the 70s come up with this idea for mortgage-backed securities and how, you know, even though this person didn't mean anything, ill by it, it 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 set the fuse for this uh, explosive uh, uh cataclysm yeah. in 2009 um and it works so well and I, I remember just seeing that and going okay so it's a good idea it, it works you know and and the, the, the chapter ended up you know being structured very differently it's in the middle of the chapter not at the beginning but it definitely it, it was very helpful to see that and then as i kept watching the movie i go wow this is This is what you're trying to do done very well. It's also a movie, not a book. uh, And it's got movie stars, so don't sweat it in (laughs) comparison. But the general theme of like, you know, anytime you say to someone, uh, uh, for example, an editor, you know, you're trying to grapple with all these big ideas and they're saying, what's, you know, you need to focus. And you say something like, all these ideas are related or all these things are interconnected. It's always time to come down and listen to your editor or wife or therapist or you know or whoever it is who's trying to talk you down off the ledge and be reminded like you've got to narrow your focus in order to tell a story that the audience is going to care about. And so the movie was really helpful in reminding me of that because it is so expertly told and you know when I got to the Margot Robbie scene instead of going, oh you're trying to dumb it down for me I thought, no, you're trying to make 100% bulletproof sure that I understand what you're talking about because that's your job. You're the storyteller. And so that really helped me feel comfortable at the same in needing to do the same thing. I realized like as a writer, just make sure the audience understands what you're talking about and then you can take them somewhere new. But You can't move on until you know that they're doing that. And also I had the benefit I realized of not just being angry, but trying to be constructive at the same time, something this movie is not doesn't need to concern itself with. It's documenting um, a terrible event. It doesn't need to take responsibility for saying, "And here's how we should be restructuring banking," uh, because it's a movie and not, uh, you know, not the government.
0: Yeah. So uh, feel free not to reveal this if it blows the ending of your book. But is the restaurant industry salvageable? I mean, do you do you feel optimistic, or do you feel the same sort of depression that we feel at the end of The Big Short?
1: I feel tremendously optimistic. I mean, the, the pessimistic part of me comes from something we talked about in the Big Short, and that is the idea that after a disaster, there's such a gravitational pull toward the status quo and people want to get back to the way things were, which in the restaurant industry was very inequitable for almost everybody. You know, um, that is something I don't want to happen in a way that we've seen in the um, financial and in the real estate industries. But in terms of where restaurants are right now, yes, they've had this meteor come uh, out of the sky and crash into them, but they, they already had this overlapping series of terrible illnesses that they weren't being treated for. And as a result of the cataclysm, workers have regrouped and gone, whoa, I don't know if I'm ready to re-up. I don't know if I want to redeploy. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we've seen 25% of the workforce say I'm not going back to work for a variety of reasons. One of, only one of them is the fact that they they had a break for the first time in their working lives. And they they had a moment to realize I don't know that this works for me, being a happy, healthy individual who hopes to maybe uh, start a family or own property someday or not work nights or whatever the issues uh, are. Um, So I think we're at a pivot point, much as everybody hates the word pivot, where um, there's real potential for change in the industry at various levels uh, of different types of restaurants. Uh, I think a lot of it is really contingent on the two factors, which are workers being able to capitalize on a moment where the power dynamic has shifted in their favor for the first time in generations and diners caring about the people who make their food enough to voice their concern and want to stand with workers, whether that means, you know, avoiding a a place that's uh, being picketed or supporting the kind of business that they believe in and, uh, you know, using just a handful of really simple techniques to figure out like, okay, so just stay away from this type of restaurant and the type of restaurants I do know and love and I've already figured out these are good people – keep going back to them and giving them my business and and tipping well or whatever it is like being, you know, being a good patron and just supportive of the the change you actually want to see in the world. So not to seem too naively optimistic, but I think there's reason to hope for a, a better future for restaurants and their workers right now.
0: My thanks to Corey Mintz, whose new book, The Next Supper, The End of Restaurants As We Knew Them and What Comes After is in bookstores everywhere. Support your independent bookseller if you can. And if you've enjoyed listening to Corey, you should know he reads the audiobook version, too. You can find Corey on Twitter at Corey Mintz, all one word, and you can find The Big Short on Blu-ray and DVD from Paramount Home Entertainment. It's also streaming on Netflix and Amazon Prime Video in Canada, and in the U.S. on Pluto TV. And you can rent or buy it on VOD pretty much everywhere. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where I host the Now What podcast every Friday... In fact, uh, this last one has Corey on it, too. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-C-A-S-T, and pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme song is By the Last Year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're there. Watch movies. Stay safe. Wear a mask if you go out. Please get your shot. I'll see you next time.